This podcast is sponsored by Murex. Murex has devoted 30 years to the design, implementation, and evolution of integrated trading, risk management, processing, and post-trade solutions, leading to MX3, its third-generation platform. Driven by innovation and client partnership, Murex continues to play a lead role in capital markets, and more than 40,000 users around the globe rely every day on our platform for their trading, hedging, funding, risk management, or processing operations. Murex, the technology partner of your transformation. To find out more, please visit murex.com. Hello, and welcome to a DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schieffer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. The fallout of Brexit will be far-reaching, although it's a little too early to determine the exact impact on the different facets of the derivatives industry. In this DerivSource podcast, we will be discussing the possible impact of a Brexit on CCP clearing for the derivatives market. And specifically, we speak to Michael Thomas, partner in the financial services team at law firm Hogan Lovells, who gives us an update on the status of both Amir and Mifid, but also discusses with us the challenges of euro-denominated clearing equivalency, as well as wider issues of global stress testing and too big to fail CCPs. Here is DerivSource reporter Lynn Strong and Dodds speaking to Michael Thomas. Hi, this is Lynn Strong and Dodds at DerivSource. Today we are talking with Michael Thomas, partner in the financial service teams at law firm Hogan Lovell. Michael, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin the questions. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. I'm a partner in the financial institutions group at Hogan Lovells. I advise on all aspects of financial services regulation and have a particular interest in market infrastructure, including in particular central counterparties. Today, we will be talking about the EMEA regulation and the where we go now with Brexit. The first question is, what will happen to Amir and MIFID II? Will the UK continue to implement the regulation or develop its own version, which some people are calling Ramir? Well, I think that's a good question. And actually, it goes to the heart of the choice that the UK has to make in the post-Brexit environment. And that is either to maintain as much of EU law as possible within its own law, or to go its own way and to potentially deregulate elements of the financial services sector, or to develop more UK-oriented requirements that are felt to be more suitable to the UK market. But I think the more likely scenario is that we will, in some way, incorporate provisions reflecting the requirements of EMEA and MIFID II into UK domestic law. And there are a number of reasons for this. The first is that some of this law is derived from international agreements at the G20 summit at Pittsburgh in 2009, which provided for the improvement of risk management and clearing of over-the-counter derivatives, which has been enshrined in EMEA, and also common standards for the supervision of CCPs, which again is enshrined in EMEA. And MIFID II again will implement requirements that have been agreed at a higher international level, in addition to a number of other European-specific areas of focus. So the other issue 
is that financial institutions in the UK have already had to get themselves upgraded to the EMEA standard of regulation. So, for example, UK CCPs have had to go through an extensive authorization process under EMEA and have had to ha redesign their clearing arrangements to ensure that they are compliant with the requirements under EMEA. To impose or to change the law in order to impose new or different requirements would impose additional cost burdens on the financial services industry in the UK, which would arguably be unpalatable to the UK financial institutions, particularly having after they have gone through such extensive regulatory change in the past few years. The other issue is that the more that the UK diverges from EU law, in particular, the more that it diverges from the requirements under EMEA and MIFID II, and the less likely it will be that UK financial institutions will be able to benefit from the third country regimes under those regulations. So, for example, under EMEA, there is a third country regime that permits non-EU CCPs to access the EU to provide clearing services, provided that their home state jurisdiction applies an equivalent regime to that under EMEA for the regulation of clearinghouses. And there are similar third country access requirements under MIFID II for firms wishing to do wholesale business on a cross-border basis from an equivalent jurisdiction. So my suspicion is that we will end up with a form of law that incorporates into and adapts into UK law the requirements of EMEA and MIFID II. Of course, there will be a need to amend those laws to the extent necessary to reflect the fact that the UK is no longer a member of the EU, such as, for example, the disapplication of any provisions that relate to interactions with EU regulatory bodies, such as ESMA, and in the case of MIFID II, the disapplication of passporting rights, unless and except to the extent that the UK is able to negotiate some form of continuation of passporting rights as part of the exit negotiations. Second question is focused on euro-denominated clearing, which has been in the news quite a bit after Brexit. What do you think will happen to that sector? I think that's a difficult one to answer with much certainty at this point. Clearly, there was a move within the European Central Bank a couple of years ago to mandate that euro-denominated financial instruments should be cleared by a eurozone-based central counterparty. That policy was taken to court, to the European courts, by the UK government, and the UK government won in having that policy struck out. And the reason why the ECB's policy failed is because it didn't have the power under EU law and under its founding powers to actually impose the policy in the first place. Now, if we are outside the EU, we will have less influence over the formation of policy within the EU as we will no longer be a member with a say at the legislative table. And it is entirely possible that the EU may subsequently create the power and give the power to the ECB in order to impose a Eurozone clearing requirement for Euro-denominated instruments. However, I think this is a matter of politics and there will be a focus on our own diplomats and our negotiating team in the Brexit negotiations to ensure that the position of the city as a location for the clearing of euro instruments is not undermined by changes of policy within the EU itself. In terms of the structure of the regulations that apply to clearing houses, 
there is a possibility that in relation to the regulatory structure governing clearinghouses under EMEA, there is a regime that permits third country CCPs to provide clearing services to EU-based clearing members. This is the third country regime under EMEA. So there is a mechanism to allow UK CCPs to clear for European clearing members. The question of whether those UK CCPs would be required to comply with any additional requirements to clear euros or maybe restricted from clearing euros is essentially a matter for policy and negotiation. But clearly, the less influence we have within Europe, the less able we are to prevent European regulators and legislative bodies from imposing requirements that may operate to the detriment of the city. Well, that leads me on to my next question. I mean, there are two questions on this. One, you just touched upon some of the challenges of LCH, ClearNet, CME, and the LME post-Brexit. Are there any other challenges you foresee? And do you think, and this has been talked about, will they have to move over to the continent or use one of their subsidiaries, like LCH, ClearNet has a subsidiary in Paris? Well, and I do appreciate um, it is early days. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is early days, and, and I can't speak for any particular clearinghouse on this call. But, I mean, as I said, there's, there is a regime under EMEA that enables non-EU clearinghouses to provide clearing services to European clearing members. So there is a legal structure there that can be used to preserve the operations of UK CCPs. What will make it difficult is if the EU imposes additional requirements, either on its clearing members or on clearing houses accessing Europe more generally, that would require, for example, euro-denominated instruments to be cleared by a eurozone-based CCP. And if that was to be the case, then UK CCPs would need to take a decision either to cease to clear those euro-denominated instruments or to establish a clearing operation within Europe. It is not an inconsiderable task to establish a new clearinghouse. The authorization process under EMEA takes about a year, and it is necessary to ensure that the clearinghouse is robust and has all of the services that it needs to support its operations, and also that its rules and regulations and clearing arrangements and security taking arrangements and collateral management arrangements are legally enforceable, that its default management arrangements are enforceable against defaulting clearing members. And this requires uh, quite a lot of legal work to ensure that all of these aspects of the CCP's operations hold up in a default scenario. So maintaining two clearinghouses in the UK and in the European area will present cost and logistical challenges. In addition, there will of course be a need for the clearinghouses to continue to service the markets that are not subject to any new EU requirement that requires a Eurozone-based clearinghouse, such as for example the need to continue to service the UK markets. However, we will need to see what the precise change in the legal regime is um, before determining whether it is even appropriate or necessary to establish another presence within Europe. And again, I realize it's early days, but you talked about equivalency, and it took about four years for the EU and US to agree, and they had different models. Do you have any idea of whether the UK may move more to the US original model, which 
or will they keep to the EU model? And will it? Do you think it will take as long as it did with the U.S. if the U.K. has to agree on equivalency? I think it's more likely that the U.K. will continue with the EU-based model rather than to change its clearing requirements to align more closely to the U.S. clearing model. And that is because of a number of different reasons. One is that the U.K. is currently applying the European clearing model under EMEA, and also the way that the UK and European markets and clearing arrangements work are very much based upon a principle-to-principle clearing model, whereas the US does allow for different types of clearing structures. So the current model in the UK is the one that UK clearing firms and clearing members and firms using UK clearing houses are familiar with. In terms of how long it would take to establish equivalency arrangements with the US for UK CCPs, well, that really is a matter of speculation. We don't know, but presumably, or hopefully, if the UK maintains equivalent arrangements to that which are maintained under EMEA, then given the fact that the US and the EU have agreed equivalency arrangements in their recent negotiations, that that provides a model for the establishment of equivalency arrangements between the UK and the US. If we diverge significantly from the European requirements so as to create our own clearing regime, then, of course, the relevance of the EU-US negotiations becomes less significant. Looking beyond, Amir, what would happen to the Banking Recovery and Resolution Directive, or the BRRD? If the UK repeals it, is there something to take its place, or do you think it would be better to keep it? Well, again, the BRRD is implemented in the UK. If the UK was to leave the EU, then the application of the BRRD would depend upon whether the UK remained within the European Economic Area. If the UK did not join the European Economic Area, then it would become a third country for the purposes of BRRD, and EU member states would become third countries for the purposes of the UK Banking Act 2009. So one of the consequences of the UK being a third country is that in accordance with Article 55 of the BRRD, known as the bail-in provision, financial institutions regulated in the EU, which incur liabilities and English law contracts, will have to seek the inclusion of contractual recognition of bail-in clauses in those English law contracts. Now, I do not see any good reason why we wouldn't implement or maintain in the UK provisions that are equivalent to those under the BRRD. It is law which the UK has been instrumental in helping the EU to develop, and so I think that it would be sensible for the UK to continue to replace, uh, remain with BRRD-based provisions. And finally, the last question is a wider question. In May, the Bank of England called for global stress testing to stop CCPs from becoming too big to fail. Is this a possibility, and what are the current rules at the moment? Well, at the moment, the Bank of England requires its own CCPs to conduct stress testing of their margin methodologies and their risk management processes, and this is consistent with the requirements under EMEA. In relation to global stress testing, I think the issue is whether there will be consistent standards for the stress testing of CCPs in 
the key jurisdictions around the world. Clearly, CCPs are systemically important organizations, and the more markets that a CCP supports, the more that it becomes systemically important to that market. Because if a CCP were to fail, then the market will be significantly hampered from being able to operate. Indeed, in some markets, the absence of a CCP will mean that the market cannot operate at all. So there is a legitimate argument for ensuring that CCPs with reach into multiple jurisdictions around the world should be assessed by common standards in terms of their risk management arrangements and their ability to withstand shocks to their operations. However, that will require international cooperation. Whilst we've seen that agreements have been made at an international level, such as through the G20 commitments to, for example, improve the risk management and clearing of derivative contracts, over-the-counter derivative contracts in particular, the way in which those requirements have been implemented in different jurisdictions, whether the US or the EU or in Asia, are different in each jurisdiction. So to ensure that there is a truly harmonized international regime for stress testing of CCPs, it would require some form of international coordination. There is a precedent for this in the sense that the CPSS IOSCO requirements for financial market infrastructure do provide a template for um, the establishment of common standards in different jurisdictions for the supervision of market infrastructure such as CCPs and to the extent that there is a drive for global stress testing arrangements then I think the developed organizations such as CPSS IOSCO will be key in ensuring that there is a common template for establishing those stress testing requirements. Who performs the stress tests I think is another question. I think that the primary responsibility ought really to be on the domestic regulator of the CCP, but of course there needs to be a proper exchange of information between regulators of the, both the CCP and the markets that the CCP supports. Well, thank you very much for your time and your thoughts. It's been very insightful. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to speak to you. Thank you to Michael Thomas of Hogan Levels for joining us in this podcast. To read the transcript or to see related articles or podcasts, please go to our podcast show notes page on DerivSource.com and stay tuned for more commentary on Brexit and coming podcasts. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time.